Wade into Wealth, taking one of life's most intimidating topics, money, your financial well-being, and providing simple, easy-to-understand ways to be more comfortable with your own financial health. This is Wade into Wealth, brought to you by the Wade Group at Brighton Securities. We haven't updated our will in 15 years. I'd like to set up a trust. Can you help us with this? We're purchasing a home. We need an attorney. Can you recommend someone? The answer is yes. We aren't attorneys. A regular part of our job is consulting with attorneys, both those of our clients and being able to recommend attorneys for folks who could use some help. We're joined this week by one of those attorneys that we often recommend folks speak with in situations when they need help, Jake Whiting of the Whiting Law Firm in Leroy, New York. Jake, we've got a bunch of questions we're going to cover with you, many of which come from our clients, and we usually either have to contact you with or we give our clients your number so they can speak with you directly. Uh, Jake and his brother John, along with their father Reed, practice law together. Uh, we've worked with all three and trust the Whitings implicitly, which is why we've brought Jake on this week to answer some of the questions that, that we often get from our clients and usually end up reaching out to Jake, John, or their father, Reed. Let's start with one of the most common topics we get from our clients, wills. Jake, this is a simple question, but why does someone need a will? Sure. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, to put it as simply as possible, people should have a will to dictate two things. Number one, where do they want their assets to pass when they're gone? And number two, uh, who do they want to be in charge as the executor to administer the estate by, number one, collecting all the assets, number two, paying off any of the final debts, and then number three, uh, fulfilling the terms of the will by distributing uh, the net estate to the beneficiaries under the will. So we know we've come across it and you and I have actually worked in circumstances like this together, but we all know we should have a will. What happens when someone passes away without a will? Sure. So in New York state, there's only one person who cannot be disinherited and that would be a spouse. The law prohibits that. But outside of your spouse, the testator, the person who signs the will, can dictate to whom of their choosing they want their assets to go. It does not need to be family. It does not need to be uh, a person. It could be a charity uh, or another entity. So what happens when there's no will is your wishes in your head don't matter and you're no longer here to express your wishes and the laws of intestacy take over. And at that point, uh, the probate code determines number one, the preference of the administrator to handle the estate and number two, who are going to be the beneficiaries of the estate. What does it mean for someone to be disinherited? A person is disinherited when, without a will, they would be uh, a beneficiary of the estate. Okay. So, but with the will, they are not included. Uh, one instance would be uh, if 
Chuck and Ethan's parents did wills and only included Ethan for obvious reasons. Sounds being about the, right. Being the favorite. Understood. <laughs> yeah. Chuck, Chuck would be disinherited because he would be entitled to take in the estates uh, out without a will, but the will trumps that and uh, Chuck would be on the outside looking in in that instance. Understood. Thank you. Um, you, you mentioned the role of the executor too. Can you, you know, so you're someone selected to be an executor. What does that mean? Can you share some of the responsibilities of if you were selected to be an executor, what that means? Sure. Thank you. The executor hopefully uh, has a decent understanding of the testator's assets, liabilities, uh, and property that they own at the time of their death. And the testator they, would be the person who is who has written the will. Correct. Okay. Yeah, you know, the testator is the person who signed the will. So typically, what we recommend is when somebody signs a will, uh, we send them with a copy and encourage them to sit down with their executor and explain why they chose them, uh, where their assets sit, um, approximate valuations, and any big debts that are out there. So when someone passes and you're the nominated executor, you technically don't have power until a court says you're appointed. Uh, So there's a little bit of a freeze frame where nothing can happen to the assets of the testator. But hopefully, if you're the nominated executor, you know, number one, uh, where the original will is located. It's typically located at uh, the attorney's office that drafted the will. So as the executor, you would contact that attorney to either obtain the original will and go see another attorney to help you with the estate, or more likely contact that attorney for a meeting to sit down and discuss handling the estate. And that's a long explanation to say, get a hold of the original will and get an attorney involved. And then you would begin the process of petitioning the court to be formally appointed executor. Okay. Something that seems reasonable is that if you have a will in place, you mentioned having a conversation with your executor, but also letting them know where your will is stored in your home so they can, because they may not know who the attorney was that drafted the will, but knowing, hey, this is where we keep these documents in the event something happens to us. Yeah, and there's really no perfect uh, solution, Chuck. The Everybody's concerned about sharing passwords or uh, writing down passwords or keeping things electronically or a hard copy. Uh, to me, the best advice is just to sit down and have those discussions with mm-hmm. your loved ones so that everybody's on the same page and everybody knows your wishes verbally as you explain them, which also jive with the written will that you execute. Start to finish, let's say someone comes in, someone contacts you, husband and wife or anyone. How long is the process typically of getting a will in place? Things are a little topsy-turvy with COVID, uh, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, But outside of COVID times, typically, uh, you could expect, at least at our firm, about a three-week turnaround time. We would schedule an initial meeting to gather data, discuss your goals, understand your uh, family breakdown, and then uh, prepare documents according to those wishes. Uh, within a week or so, usually get them to our clients for review by email. Uh, We want them to have a 
full uh, opportunity to examine the documents and make sure, number one, they haven't made any uh, change of heart, and also that we accurately captured their wishes. And at that point, when they give us the green light, uh, we'd set a second appointment to go through the formal execution process of signing the wills. So one, one question that we get often from clients, Jake, is uh, you have an IRA or a 401k retirement account. You have a will. Uh, the IRA says, or retirement account says, if it's our fathers, uh, Chuck and Ethan are beneficiaries. But as Will says, the money gets donated to Lollipop Farm. What happens and, and what is the priority of how that flows in the event of our father's passing? Sure. So the priority would be, let's talk about the testamentary substitutes first. And what I mean by that is any assets that pass by operation of law or any assets that pass by written beneficiary, which in the case of the IRA would be a testamentary substitute. Okay. And then it's easy to think of the will, the testamentary testamentary instrument as a catch-all to grab everything else. So in that, in your example, if your father has you and Chuck as the beneficiaries, that money gets distributed regardless of what the will says Mm -hmm. and directly between the custodian of the asset and the beneficiaries. The chain of events in that instance is typically the beneficiary contacts the IRA custodian, notifies them of the death. The custodian would ask for a copy of the death certificate, and then would unilaterally issue the claim paperwork to the beneficiaries. And when that paperwork sent back, uh, the IRA custodian would cut the check. Um, Conversely, once all those items are distributed, everything else goes into the estate uh, and then passes pursuant to the will. So in that instance, if your dad had five grand in a bank account and that was the only asset in the estate, that money would go into the estate. There'd be various expenses, court filing fees, legal fees, et cetera. And then whatever's left uh, would be distributed to uh, Lollipop Farm. Great. Thank you. So besides a will, someone comes to you to get their affairs in order. What else do you normally recommend putting in place at that time? Sure. The, the triumvirate of estate planning documents are number one, the will, uh, number two, a power of attorney, and number three, a healthcare proxy. Uh, A healthcare proxy, as most people probably know, uh, directs who medical providers should consult for input if you, as the principal, are incapacitated uh, and unable to either understand questions or give your own directives. A common example would be uh, you're in a coma. You obviously can't hear and understand questions, nor can you give instructions. So the healthcare proxy would give the medical provider the authority to take instruction from the person you delegate uh, as your healthcare proxy. The power of attorney is similar, but you can think of this as a finance and business oriented document. you don't want to 
ever have to use a power of attorney or a healthcare proxy generally because they're usually used in dire medical uh, or emergency type scenarios. But it, the power of attorney would allow your designated agent to handle your financial affairs when one of two things occurs. Number one, when needed. So once again, if you're in a coma and you can't pay your own bills or manage your own money, yep. your agent can step in and make sure uh, bills are getting paid and uh, finances are being managed appropriately. Sure. Uh, number two, you could ask them to, uh, the principal can ask the agent to help them. We see this a lot with elderly folks who've always managed their own funds and it just becomes overwhelming to them. So they have their son, daughter, friend, colleague, uh, cut their checks each month, pay their bills. And uh, it's a nice uh, document to have. The power of attorney is really crucial because if you do not have one, and then suffer a catastrophic injury, uh, your your trusted advisor would have to petition uh, the court to be appointed the guardian. It's a very cumbersome, time-consuming, and expensive proposition. So something we often talk about, and what I'm hearing you say in a variety of different ways, is that nobody's planning to fail. But when we fail to plan, that is effectively what happens. And it sounds like in this case, taking a couple of steps, not a huge investment of time and really not a huge investment of anything can really make things a lot easier, both for yourselves or your loved ones down the road, if something were to happen to you. Yeah, that's correct. And it doesn't matter if you pass away with total assets of 20,000 or 20 million. Uh, that is money that you have earned over your life and you should take the time to direct where you'd like it to go. And then I think perhaps even more importantly, you should direct how you want it to go so that you take that decision out of those people you leave behind. And what I mean by that is in your guys' example, again, uh, if nobody, if your parents didn't name you as, the uh, executor, Chuck might feel obligated that he should be the one to do it. Ethan might feel obligated to be the executor and it can lead to some type of sparring. Even if both actors are acting in pure intentions. So put it in paper. Nobody likes to think about it, but put it on paper while you're here so that it's clear and easy for those family members you leave behind to manage the affairs. So we're often asked by clients and it kind of dovetails from exactly what, what you just said with if they should open up a trust and why someone would consider opening a trust. Sure. So there are a ton of reasons to consider a trust similar to those beneficiary driven assets, such as 401ks, IRAs, life insurance, by putting assets into a trust, you remove them from the will and the probate or estate process. So it's a two-step process. Basically, you would consult an attorney to generate a trust to meet your specific needs. Uh, then once the trust is formed on paper, you would have to retitle whatever assets you want and put them into the trust. 
for real estate, that would be signing a deed over from your individual name to the trust name. For bank accounts, that would be opening trust bank accounts and transferring funds into those accounts. The reasons, as I mentioned, are numerous. One reason, uh, which is a common one, is for Medicaid and nursing home protection, long-term care planning. Uh, another reason would be to avoid the assets going into probate to save fees on the back end and also keep the assets outside of the purview of the court. Uh, a third reason would be if somebody is on public assistance, you might do what's called a supplemental needs trust to allow that beneficiary of the trust to maintain his or her public assistance while getting supplemental benefits from the trust. So there's uh, a few reasons that I just laid out. And as I mentioned, we could go on, but we might uh, we might be here a few more hours if we go too far in depth on that note. We appreciate the brevity. Yeah, but I think we should, I want to expand on part of it because it is something that comes up very often. And often the first question is, well, should I open a trust? And then I think what I just heard you say is we have to kind of dig a little deeper and see, well, why would we need a trust? The Medicaid's the big one that comes up, the long-term care planning. That's something that a lot of people are concerned about or worried about. Can you give us a couple of scenarios or higher level views of who might want to consider some Medicaid or long-term care planning? And at what age that might be worth starting to think about it? Sure. The, the age is a tough consideration because there's a push-pull there due to uh, what's commonly known as the five-year look-back period. Uh, a lot of times people are thinking about this at age 60 to 65, but they're still working, still feeling good, no major health ailments. So the concept of potentially needing nursing home care is not on the front of their mind. However, you need to move early enough so that if and when nursing home care is needed, those transfers and planning measures are done more than five years before an application is made. So there's no perfect solution, but the, the best solution out there would be forming what's called an irrevocable trust. And by its name, once you transfer assets into that irrevocable trust, you cannot pull them back. And that discomforts a lot of people. Uh, a second level of discomfort is created by the fact that if you want the protection for Medicaid purposes, you, neither you nor your spouse can be the trustee of the trust. And the concept there is you need to divest yourself of ownership and control of the assets if Medicaid is going to step in and publicly pay for your care. So a lot of people aren't quite comfortable with that. But the way that would look uh, is you'd form the trust, you'd appoint a third party trustee, you would transfer whatever assets you want to try and protect into the trust and hope that each transfer is done more than five years before a Medicaid application is made. Each transfer has its own transfer date. So the trust does not have a five-year clock. Each asset that's transferred has a five-year clock. So if you transfer a house January 1st, 
five years later, that clock has expired. Uh, if you transfer money June 30th, that transfer has its own uh, clock that starts ticking. Thank you for explaining that. That's what I was going to ask. Another question I have is you mentioned the irrevocable trust, which is which is the kind that is used, meaning you can't take it back out. You, that decision's made and done with. Can you, however, though, if you're setting up an irrevocable trust, if 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 Liz and I are deciding to set that up, can you set parameters in place where you could have income from that trust or still be the beneficiary of those assets while you are living and, and in good health? Yes. And to put it simply, virtually all irrevocable trusts have that option uh, that the trustee can distribute income from the trust to provide for essentially the health and wellness uh, of the uh, grantor of the trust. In your example, you and Liz. So that is great if you have a brokerage account in the trust that has uh, corporate bonds that generate interest and income. That doesn't help you if the only thing in the trust is your home. There's no income. If you're living there, uh, there's no income to be distributed. So a lot of times the assets that go in are number one, assets that the grantors intend to hold uh, in perpetuity, uh, meaning their principal residence, typically perhaps a life insurance policy. Um, And then number two, Uh, assets that they don't need or expect to need. So that could be uh, cash in the bank, $50,000. And they could often, they often do decline the income. And then if if the income isn't distributed, it gets added to the principal. And hopefully, number one, the grantor's status quo and lifestyle is maintained. And number two, the corpus of the uh, trust continues to grow over time through capital appreciation and income generation. Who would someone typically name as a trustee? That's a good question. You can name uh, individuals or what's known as a corporate trustee. Uh, A couple comments there are generally people want to appoint a family member, uh, a child, let's say. You just want to have full faith and confidence in that child to handle the trust according to your wishes. Because inherently, if that trustee is a beneficiary of the trust when you pass away, they have a financial incentive to preserve principal and not distribute income to the grantor. So you need them to have full buy-in to provide for you as you need for your health and maintenance. Um, and then also that they'll execute the distribution of the trust appropriately, say between uh, he or she and their siblings uh, when that time comes. Uh, and then if not a family member, uh, sometimes it would be a colleague or friend or financial advisor or accountant or attorney. Uh, those are all options, but it can essentially be uh, anyone who you know and trust or uh, in the case of a corporate trustee, uh, could be a a bank or a credit union or, or something along those lines. You mentioned the importance of a five-year timeline with an irrevocable trust. What happens if you need to or uh, you, you go on Medicaid or file for Medicaid before that five-year window is up? Yeah, so 
when somebody goes into a nursing home, uh, they would meet with a social worker or an intake specialist or something, uh, someone along those lines to figure out who is going to pay for this cost of care. Uh, you're looking at somewhere between ten dollars to $15,000 per month uh, for nursing home care in this area. And if you have assets in the bank to pay for that care, you would start on a private pay basis. Uh, when those assets reach the allowable resource limit, according to uh, Medicaid and New York state law, you would then you or more likely your spouse or agent would make a Medicaid application saying the nursing home resident is now eligible for Medicaid. That application itself is not very lengthy, but they, they being the County Department of Social Services require five years of documentation from uh, the nursing home applicant. And the way that works is if you plan early enough and 10 years ago, you put assets into an irrevocable trust, that never gets disclosed. It's, it's outside of Medicaid's purview. Uh, however, there's a section on the application that says, list all transfers of any assets in the last five years. And that's where if you form a trust and put a house in it, and then three years later, a Medicaid application is made, well, that house is going to be included in your resource base. And uh, that's a tough pill for people to swallow. But the concept is Medicaid is a public benefit. Uh, it is a government uh, run operation. And of course, the government writes the laws. So they want to make sure that anyone receiving Medicaid did not purposely uh, divest themselves of assets in order to avoid privately paying for that care. What about someone who gives money to their kids outside of a trust that five year, we, we see that sometimes people are just trying to avoid a trust, but that's a scenario that sometimes, sometimes it works, but sometimes it can have its challenges. Yeah. So those transfers, if they happened within the five years would hit uh, the Medicaid application and somewhat obvious statement, but you need to be fully truthful and lay all your cards on the table when you make that application and not uh, commit any fraud. When the examiner at the department of social services reviews the application and the documents submitted, you can bet that you'll receive a letter back stating we've reviewed it. We'd like more information about X, Y, and Z and which would include those gift transfers. At that time, you'd have an opportunity to state that uh, $5,000 transfer in uh, June of 2018 was for my daughter's wedding. That was a wedding gift. And you flesh that out. And if that's the case, if it's a bona fide gift for a reason other than to skirt your responsibilities to Medicaid, they'd probably let that go. Uh, on the flip side, if two days before uh, the Medicaid application was made, they see a $5,000 cash withdrawal at the ATM, they're going to uh, penalize the applicant for that and charge that transfer against 
what's left. So if their if their allowable resource limit is fifteen thousand, and they they transferred that five grand out of the ATM, uh, they would have to spend down until they reach ten thousand as opposed to fifteen. To follow up to that, if to use an example, if you know if if our parents give each of us a gift of ten thousand dollars. We need to make sure that we hold on to that money for that period of time while we're in that five-year look-back window. Is that correct? That is uh, that is a wise decision, yes, <laughs> because they, they being the Department of Social Services, probably would not uh, seek recovery from you and Ethan in your example. Uh, however, they may, and it could have repercussions for the care and stability and placement in a nursing home of your parents, if that were the case. And knowing the great guys that you guys are, you know, you'd want that money set aside so that you could make it easy on your folks Mm -hmm. and not, uh, not allow a gift end up uh, being harmful to, to the well-being of your folks. Yeah. So let's talk about real estate now. We, we, I think we, we've hammered the trust in estate planning um, pretty good for now. It's very helpful. I deal with plenty of trust, and I learned a lot on that, so I appreciate it. Well, and it's one of those two that, that when they're all set up, when trusts are set up, when they're executed and they're done, they're really, they can be really beneficial tools. Same as wills. It's when they're not in place right. that it can be, for lack of a better term, a mess. And, and oftentimes it's a mess for the people that are either left behind yeah. or your kids. So, you know, it really is true that the the ounce of prevention is worth the pound of cure here. Let's talk about real estate. Uh, you do a fair amount of real estate work. If, if you're buying or selling a home from the perspective of you as an attorney, what should we be considering about or thinking about right now? Sure. So I'll talk about uh, the buy side first. Mm-hmm. Um Generally speaking, us attorneys come into the mix after there's already a contract in place. And that would be uh, when you're looking, shopping for houses, you got a realtor on your side and you submit an offer and it's accepted. um, And you list us as the attorney, we would receive the contract, review it, speak to you about it, uh, issue our approval, and then go from there. So, a lot of times, if realtors are involved, they know the lay of the land and give sound advice during the investigative shopping around phase. Uh, with that being said, there's a couple intricacies that don't always flesh themselves out. One example would be if you own a house currently and you're looking to uh, you know, sell your starter home and upgrade to your so that you're not stuck owning two houses. And that's one thing that uh, comes up commonly. Another would be obtaining a property inspection. Uh, Unless you're a tradesman or tradeswoman, very handy and construction-based, most of us don't know much when it comes to the structural integrity of homes, the electrical, the plumbing, et cetera. So we always recommend... uh, obtaining that property inspection. So you go into uh, your new home with your eyes wide open. Um, In addition to working with the realtor, 
uh, your attorney and uh, your mortgage lender. Uh, those are typically the three people you face off with. A lot of times the attorney waits in the background while the buyer gets his or her funds in line and uh, the seller prepares all the title documents that the buyer's attorney ultimately uh, reviews. Um, on the sell side, the exact opposite of what I just said. Um, do you need a suitable housing contingency or do you have a place to go? Um, do you know your current principal on your mortgage to make sure that whatever price you accept, you can clear all the obligations to pay your attorney, pay your realtor, pay any recording expenses, pay off your mortgage, and then obviously net the balance. Um, generally speaking, handshake deals are binding. Uh, real estate is not included in that in New York State. It's subject to what's called the statute of frauds. That's why there's always a written contract when it comes to real estate. And in the event uh, you get into a private deal, uh, as a buyer, you should contact an attorney to put the purchase offer together if there's no realtors involved. And as a seller, you should have the, uh, your attorney review the purchase offer before uh, signing off and accepting. So uh, it's a big deal. Houses are typically a large asset in everybody's financial affairs. So definitely uh, consulting an attorney is, is a must in New York State. And you were a huge help to my wife and I multiple times through through real estate transactions. Uh, but you, you work with your father and you work with your brother. I work with my brother. Unfortunately. Uh, very, very much, unfortunately. All jokes aside, it's, it's a good thing. But what's the dynamic like working in this field with your family? I... Uh... I'm trying not to give too much bluster here, but uh, I, I, I couldn't speak better about it, to be honest with you. Um, having three of us with different levels of experience, but a lot of overlap, uh, really, I think, helps all three of us be better attorneys. Uh, we get some good synergies going, and uh, we're able to pick my dad's brain with 40 years of experience and knowledge uh, on a lot of items that sometimes will get better and quicker and more direct input than we would from an hour of Googling or uh, working on Westlaw or LexisNexis. Um, conversely, we help our dad a lot when it comes to technologically based inquiries and uh, especially with COVID, um, court filings are going electronic uh, a lot of things are going all email all, all the time. Um, so we, we play off each other uh, quite well. Uh, we don't, we haven't, I, I'm just had my six year anniversary. John's at five and uh, we haven't had any knockdown drag out brawls yet. So I think we're doing pretty good. Now, Big Reed is a legend. John's pretty good because your brother Cal's not involved. We'll, we'll just keep it there. Um, <laughs> Um, so if someone's, someone's considering hiring an attorney, right, what should they be looking for? What should you be asking of a prospective attorney before hiring one? Sure. I don't know if this necessarily applies to all attorneys, but it does to our firm. And that is that our main 
referral source is word of mouth uh, from either current clients or people we know around town or people who know our family, or uh, you might sit on a board with somebody uh, of a charity or something along those lines. So I would encourage people to talk to their friends and family about who they use as an attorney to get that input from an independent third party before calling around. So that way you might uh, be pointed in the right direction with a solid referral from somebody you know and trust so that it's not a blind call. And then it just becomes a matter of being comfortable with the attorney. And uh, that can be done through a brief phone call or face-to-face meeting and to explain to the attorney what your needs are, uh, what you're looking to do, what potential future needs are, and making sure hopefully that the attorney can handle any, any type of item that comes up. Uh, we pride ourselves on being a general practice firm and generally handling whatever our clients throw at us with a couple exceptions being uh, criminal defense, bankruptcies, and workers' comp. But uh, we do estate planning, do real estate, we do matrimonials, we do family court, uh, we do municipal law, we do small business formation, uh, we do civil litigation uh, if you need to unfortunately sue somebody or you are being sued. Um, And I think on the flip side, not to sound uh, disingenuous, but one thing us attorneys appreciate is patience. Uh, usually when you're calling an attorney, you get quite anxious about it and it could be something positive, <laughs> yeah, right, like, right. like buying a home, or it could be something negative, like, uh, uh, your marriage is struggling, uh, and you need, need some divorce assistance. But in any event, um, we're lucky to have great clients, uh, that are patient, understanding and, uh, receive our input, whether they like it or not. Because unfortunately, there's plenty of situations where we are the bearers of bad news, not just uh, fluffy good news. I will say, you know, and I'm, I'm in my head thinking of this is, you know, when you call an attorney, it's like when there's no toilet paper on the roll. You need it. When you call an attorney, you typically need an attorney and need someone to speak with. From our experience, one of the things that we appreciate the most about you and and your brother and your father is the accessibility is that it's there's not a huge smoke screen or firewall to go through to get a phone call back to get a response from someone and i personally think with an attorney with an advisor that is something that is really important is knowing that you have someone you can get a hold of that is accessible to you in a reasonable amount of time if need be yeah and we uh we run a pretty lean staff Uh, We only have uh, two full-time employees and two part-time employees, um, which isn't always the best because there's times where we could get more done if we had more. But the main takeaway is we are intricately involved in our work as the attorneys. So if one of us is representing you on a transaction, we are going to know the nuts and bolts and the intricacies of what's going on so that if you call me, I'm not looking for input from anybody else at my office. I'll, I'll know. And if I don't know, I'll find out and get back to you. 
and, and you've helped a number of our clients in a variety of, of circumstances. If someone has heard something today uh, and wants to speak with you or John or your father, Reed, uh, how can they get a hold of you and, and where can they find you? Yeah, sure. So probably the easiest way is uh, whitingattorneys.com. That's W-H-I-T-I-N-G-A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-S.com. Uh, that has all our uh, biographical information, uh, as well as a link to uh, submit an email, which comes into uh, our paralegals inbox and gets uh, distributed accordingly. Um, as I said, my dad's been at it for 40 years. Uh, John and I are just getting started, so we'll be here for uh, decades to come. I uh, look forward to helping as many people as we can. Hey, great. Thanks, I appreciate Jake. you being with us. Um, you know, the Whitings and the Wades go back a long way to battles of Batavia uh, versus Leroy. Little League All-Star game, All-Star baseball. <laughs> um, but I think this was good. I know from for both Ethan and I, it's helpful to ask these questions of you because we learn things too. So um, if there was something we didn't discuss today and you're listening, send us a note. We can bring Jake back on and have another session where we talk of in more specifics about listener questions or concerns, you know where to find us, Wade Group at brightonsecurities.com. So I'm sure at some point we'll do this again, probably even sooner, Jake, will have something we need yours or John or your dad's help with. So um, we appreciate you being with us and you, the listener, too, for listening to us once more on Wade Into Wealth. Contact the Wade Group at wadegroup at brightonsecurities.com or find them on Facebook or Twitter at the Wade Group. Thanks for listening to Wade Into Wealth, brought to you by the Wade Group at Brighton Securities.